Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. How many of you know you've been living long enough that everybody has a story to tell, correct? Everyone's got a story. In fact, uh, just this past week, I was working out of a coffee house in Halifax near my house, and I, I walked in and I sat down next to this couple, and I started eavesdropping. Anybody else? Like, where are my brothers and sisters at, right? I'm a massive eavesdropper, and, and, true, and to confession, I'm not even subtle about it. Like, I think, I think what I do is not eavesdropping. I think we're, we're moving into the area of leering. You know what I mean? Like, I might as well just put, put up, pull up a chair and make eye contact and, yeah, I love your story. Anyways, so, but it was almost, it was, it was really easy to eavesdrop. I was sitting down and this woman had her arm out on the table with her sleeve up and she's got this tattoo of who knows what. And she's sitting there and she's like telling her life story with this tattoo. What is it with tattoos and storytelling? You ever find that? People with tattoos just want to tell their story, good stories or bad stories. It doesn't really matter. It's like, oh, yeah, that tattoo. I don't even remember getting that. I was with my buddies and woke up. And anyways, you know what I'm talking about. Anyways, so she's telling her story of like this heart. This is my mom and this tail over here. This is my childhood dog or whatever, you know. But people have a story to tell. Am I right? And as I'm sitting there eavesdropping, leering, whatever you want to call it, um, this thought pops in my head. And, my th- and the thought was this, listen, for those of us who have been marked by Christ, or even, uh, let's use good New Testament language, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ, we've been marked by Christ, if you are here today, you've been marked by Christ, you have a story to tell. You do. I've heard so many people say, well, my story's boring, it's, it's just, it's not exciting. Listen, no, 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 listen, if you have been marked by Christ, you have a story to tell. Do not underestimate the power of your story. But not only that, what I'm finding in our cultural moment right now is that people actually want to hear your story. They really do. In the marketplace right now, I'm finding that Jesus is a welcomed conversation. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I heard the statistic about our younger generation, our Gen Z and Gen Alpha, and it was this, 45% of that generation in Canada today have neither a positive view of Jesus nor a negative view of Jesus. What's that tell us? They've never heard of Jesus, but they are welcoming a conversation about Jesus. A couple weeks ago, someone actually took me up on the offer and asked me about Jesus. And so I went out and we had this big, long, robust conversation and they asked me, you know, I I sat there and talked about the life of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the claims that Jesus made about himself. And we talked about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, how the, the historicity of Jesus. And then he asked the question, what makes Jesus different than all the other leaders and what makes Jesus so unique in the Bible? And so I talked about creation and the new heavens and the new earth and revelation. I gotta tell you, church, I was on point. Man, I felt like I was on fire, you know, until he asked me this question. He said, you claim to know Jesus. What has he done for you? What is your story? And I had to think about it for just a moment, but this is what I, this is what I said to him. This is what I ended up saying to him. I said, you know, my story is the same story of everyone else who's been touched by Jesus, Now, listen, 
yeah, you're going to find we're all different. We all have different backgrounds. We're different ages, different gender. We're different ethnicity, all of it. The, the, the church of Jesus Christ is so robust and so vast and so big, and there's differences everywhere. But what I've discovered is that ultimately my story is the story of every other Christian. And he said, so what is that? My answer was, it's the story of God redeeming us. God is redeeming us. For a few minutes today, I want to talk to you about my redemption story. I want to talk to you about our redemption story. And what I'd like to do is I'd just like to give us some handles and some language about telling our redemption story. When we say things like, I have been redeemed or I have been saved, what exactly are we talking about? Can we articulate that? But even further, I also want to ask this question. Have we been telling the whole story? And I would argue in the cultural moment we, that we're in, in the Western church, is that we've gone maybe a whole generation, and we've not actually been telling our whole redemption story. And so today, I just want to give us some handles and some language uh, to tell our story. But before we do, I want to ask this question. This question. The question is, what is redemption? Now, when you hear this word or you see this word, what comes to your mind? Now, I can't speak for you. I know for me, when I think of the word redemption, immediately I think about forgiveness of sins. Anybody else think that? I think about the forgiveness of sins. Now, but what I want to do is I want to suggest to you today that when we talk about redemption, redemption is much bigger and much more robust than just the forgiveness of of our sins. In fact, when you see the word redemption in the Bible and guys that are, you know, the guys that are using redemption, the writers, Paul and Peter and Jesus, they're using this word redemption. They've actually taken it from the Roman Empire. There's Roman overtones with this word of redemption. And redemption in Jesus' day and in the New Testament was tied to this idea of slavery. And in the Roman Empire, at the time of the New Testament was written, there was something, historians tell us, there's something like 60 million slaves, people enslaved. Julius Caesar in the Roman Empire conquering one nation after another nation. And Caesar, he enslaved hundreds of thousands of people. For all you history nerds out there, uh, when, when Caesar went and he kind of took over this place called Gaul, history tells us that he enslaved 500,000 men in one day. So this idea of slavery in the ancient Near East and in the New Testament at the time was this great epidemic that was happening all around us. Now, if you were a slave in the ancient Near East, you were not considered a human being. You were considered a piece of property. You were not a human being. You were not a college student. You were a piece of property. You were a hunk of meat. You belonged to your master. And a Roman master at the time uh, enjoyed uh, a lot of le legal freedom that allowed him to do whatever he wanted to his slaves. It was a law actually in the, at the time called the law of, of uh, sorry, the, lo the law of life and death, which meant that a master could do anything he wanted. He could beat his slave. He could torture his slave. He could do anything to his slave. In fact, I've been reading this book by a historian by the name of Tom Holland, a book called Dominion, and this book talks about the rise of Christianity from its earliest origins all the way to, to today. And Tom Holland gets into this conversation about the Roman Empire and this relationship between 
between masters and slaves, and this is what he said. He said that masters used to let out their sexual tension on their slaves. Not their spouse or spouses. They would relieve their sexual tension on their slaves. In fact, sex in the Roman Empire was a sign of dominion and mastery over you. You weren't a human being. This was your life as a slave, unless you were redeemed. And redemption, as it relates to slavery, would be like this. Now, you're in bondage to slavery. Uh, You have been enslaved. You're a piece of property. You're not human. Somebody could come along out of mercy and grace and they could redeem you. It was an actual legal act called manumission. And what they would do is they would come and they would actually buy you out of slavery. They would buy your freedom and you would become a new person. You'd become a new man. You would have a new title in society. You were no longer a slave. You were a freed man. Now, when Jesus and Paul are talking about redemption, what they are talking about is what God is doing in Christ Jesus. That Jesus has come to rescue you. That Jesus has come to redeem you. That Jesus has come to save us. Not from the bondage of a human master, but from the bondage of what? Sin. And hell, and hell on earth. And so when Paul is writing this message to Rome, you got to understand the backdrop of slavery. And the the language he uses here is all redemption type of language. Now, when he writes writes uh, this letter to the Roman church, it was said that the city of Rome, uh, about one-third to half of its population, was enslaved. Think about that. Hundreds of thousands of people were enslaved. Now, imagine for a moment that you're a slave and you show up to church and you walk in and there's this really weird, bizarre conglomerate of people because at the church in Rome, there were both masters and slaves attending the same church. Imagine the pastoral dysfunction, uh, the pastoral work there. I mean, that's crazy. But it wasn't just masters and slaves. It was male and female. It was every ethnicity, every hierarchy, everybody in the empire squashed in this one room in this brand new idea called church. And you sit there, you're a slave, and you hear Paul start to write these words. Look at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Listen to what Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. These sufferings, the suffering of being subhuman, the suffering of being treated like an animal, the suffering of having no money, no freedom, no privacy, no no identity, all of this suffering that you feel and see and that you hear and touch, everything, all of it is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in you. Now you're sitting there as a slave and you're thinking to yourself, glory? Wait a second, isn't that for Rome? Isn't that for Caesar? I'm just a nobody. I'm a slave. But Paul is coming along and he's saying, no, 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 no. This present suffering that you're experiencing is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in you. That is good news. Now let's keep reading. Let's look at what else he says. He says, "For um, for the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of this, but this is some loaded stuff. Like, I wish we could talk about this, but there is an interplay uh, that happens within redemption, that our redemption's actually tied to the rest of creation's redemption. This is what Paul is getting into, but let's keep reading. Verse 23, he says this, And not only that, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons and daughters. Help me out, church. What does it say? The redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. Now just imagine, you're sitting in church, you're a slave, and you hear somebody reading that you are going to be redeemed. And one day, glory is going to be revealed in you. But not only you, all of creation waits for you to be saved. All of uh, every square inch of creation is waiting for you to be saved. Can you imagine sitting there and hearing redemption being spoken over you, pertaining to you as a follower of Jesus Christ? Isn't that great news? Isn't that incredible? Now, here's where I think we go astray when we talk about redemption. When we hear redemption, we think of one thing and one thing only. We think about forgiveness of, of sins. I think of God, uh, I think of Jesus dying on the cross to forgive me of my sins. Now, don't get me wrong. Forgiveness of sins is central. It's pivotal. It's important. And praise God that our sins have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. But I want to argue today from the Bible, even from Romans chapter 8, Paul is saying this, that when we think about redemption and this idea of redemption, it's so much bigger. That redemption is huge. That redemption is holistic, meaning that when Jesus died for you and me, he did not die just to save our souls, but to save our minds, to save our hearts, to save our, 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 our bodies even. But church, if I can just tell you about redemption today, it's bigger than that. It's to save our relationships to our spouse in a, in a dysfunctional marriage. It's to save us with our dysfunctional relationship with our family tree, our father, our mother, whatever it is. It's to save us from ourselves and our own propensity to want to do evil. It's to save us from our own addictions. Amen? But if I can tell you about redemption, it's even bigger than that. God, Jesus came to save St. John. Jesus came to save New Brunswick. Jesus came to save Canada. Amen? But it's even bigger than that, church, because what Paul says and what he claims about redemption is that all of creation, the entire cosmos, are waiting to be redeemed, meaning the entire universe. That means every star, every planet, every moon, every galaxy, every particle, even every dimension, not just the things that we see in the material world, but even the immaterial world, in the supernatural realm, everything that Genesis calls the heavens and the earth, all things will be redeemed in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And if you take God up on his offer and you receive the generous and merciful and gracious invitation of God through Jesus' death and resurrection, then you are part of that story. We are part of that story. 
The reason why I'm telling you this is because when we need to open our eyes, church, to the very story that you and I claim about Jesus is so much bigger than you and I. That's our redemption story. That's it. I love what N.T. Wright says about redemption. This is what he, how he defines it. He says, redemption denotes the action or actions whereby God rescues human beings, and if we're being biblical, which I hope we are, the whole cosmos from the state of sin, decay, and death to which they have become subject. All of the cosmos. Right now, church, this is what what God is doing in Jesus Christ as we speak. That's huge. Amen? Now, how do we take all of that? Now, we talked about the, the, the grand skill of redemption. How do we break that down into our everyday life? Now, to do that, I want to take us to another passage in the Gospel of Luke. Um, in Luke chapter 19, and if you don't know the Bible, if you're new to the church, the Gospels are all eyewitness accounts of this Jesus who comes from a place called Nazareth. He's born into this world. He comes in and he announces the kingdom of heaven. And when he talks about heaven, he's not talking about some far, far, this place in a far, far off galaxy. He's talking about heaven actually crashing into earth right now. And in Luke chapter 19, he comes crashing into this guy's life by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, where are my Sunday school nerds at, right? Was Zacchaeus tall or small? Yeah, he was, an e- he was a wee little man, right? Yeah. But he was also a tax collector. People did not like this man. He didn't like, you know, no one liked him. Jesus comes in. We don't know what happens in their conversation, but at some point, Jesus comes out of his house. Verse 9, look what Jesus says. He says, today, say it with me, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. He says, salvation has come to this house. Uh, what's he saying? He's saying, Zacchaeus, even though you're messed up, even though you've been ostracized, even though you are hated by the Jews, I have declared over you that you are one of God's chosen people. That's what he's saying. And then Jesus goes on to say this, verse 10. He says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, why is this important that we, that we come here? Because when you see the word save, or you see the word redeem, or you see the word rescue in the gospel, they're all interchangeable. Does that make sense? So when we talk about salvation, we're talking about redemption. If we're talking about redemption, we're talking about salvation. Are you, are you tracking with me? Right? And so Jesus comes along. Here's the deal. And he says, I'm the son of man. This is, this is him talking about himself. And he says, I've come to seek and save that which is lost. Now, what is lost? Everyone, right? And everything. Everything is lost. Everything is out of whack, right? We're out of whack. We, our relationship with God is out of whack. Our relationship to each other is dysfunctional. Our relationship to creation is even out of whack. Everything is lost. And what the gospel says is that God comes and he breaks into human history in the person of Jesus. And Jesus comes along and says, I've actually come to save you. I've come to redeem you. I've come to rescue you. Today, salvation has come to this house. Now, here's the problem when we talk about salvation. I think for a long time, we have not been telling the whole story. And here's the problem. The problem is the Bible. It is the Bible. Because when we talk about salvation, we often talk about it as an event. We talk about something that has happened in the past. 
But when you open the scriptures, you see that salvation is used not just in the past tense, it's used in the present tense. It's also used in the future tense as well. And this is really, really important. Let me say this. This is really, really important that we get this if we're going to actually frame our whole redemption story. And I want to show you this. Uh, let's, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. You still with me? Everyone good? Ephesians chapter 2. All right. Let's look at this. The Bible uses salvation in the past tense. Look, let's look at verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved, past tense, through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For by grace you have been saved. It's salvation in the past tense. Now, when you see salvation in the past tense, it's talking about, the Bible is talking about this idea called justification. Everyone say justification. Justification. And justification says that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death. So when we talk about justification, we talk about having been saved, we have been saved from hell. We have been saved from hell on earth, from damnation, from the wrath of God. How many of you know because God is love, but he's also a God of justice? God is mercy, but he's a God of power. God is a God of kindness, but he's a God of, of wrath. He is God. And no matter what our current culture has been trying to do in reframing and reclaiming Jesus as someone who cares less about sin, our God, when you look at scriptures, he's the creator of the universe, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he cares deeply about what's going on in his creation. And because of that, our God is a God of justice, and if God is a God of justice, then you and I need to be justified. Justification. We have been saved. Now, that word justification, some of you are like, man, that's just a big word. I don't even understand this. Let me help you understand uh, justification. This is what I say. Justification is just as if I never sinned. That's what that means, right? We good? It also means to declare righteousness upon someone or something. Now, here's the thing. Justification is a moment. You can put an hour, you can put a timestamp on this justification. There is a moment when you repent of your sin, when you place your faith in Christ, when you believe that he is more than just a man, that he's more than just a Jewish philosopher, that he's more than just some moral teacher, but you believe he is the son of God who came, who died, who rose again, and is coming again, and you put your faith and you trust Jesus Christ for your salvation, You trust that what happened in Christ on the cross, that he paid your price, that he's redeeming you and buying you back from slavery so that you won't be damned, so that you won't be condemned, so that God's wrath will not be poured out on you because his wrath, the Bible says, was poured out on Jesus. And because of that, you and I can be justified. We are declared righteous. Now, maybe you're here today and you've not been saved. Past tense. The Bible would say you have not been justified. The Bible would say you have not been made right with God. The Bible would say that God's wrath is on you. And I wish I could say that hell was just made up in the modern mind as a figment of of our imagination, but it is not. It is real. 
Jesus talked about it. Paul talked about it. John talked about it. And when you open the scriptures, every square inch of the Bible is pointing to a new heaven and a new earth and warning against a place called hell. It is. And if you're here today and you've never been saved, can I just say, you're not, you're not supposed to be an animal. Like God actually saved you to have, or God wants to save you and make you right with him so that you can live with him forever. Dear, dear brothers and sisters, there's way more than 70 and 80 years here on earth. Way more. There will come a day when you will die and you will stand before God and you will care about one thing and one thing only. Am I or am I not justified? And how many of you are grateful? The good news that we've been hearing for five weeks. Let me say it again. Jesus came to save you. Jesus came to justify you. And those of you who have been saved, past tense, how many of you know, man, that brings so much peace to our hearts. Isn't it great to know that you can go to bed tonight knowing that you don't owe a single thing to God? That all of your debt has been paid. That you have been forgiven. That you have been given a new identity. That you are no longer a slave, but that you are a freed man or woman in Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? Now, I would argue that for a long time, we've made justification the whole story. But I want to argue today, and I want to share this with you today, that justification is only the beginning of a long and beautiful, arduous process. That the Bible does talk about our salvation, our redemption, in the past tense. We have been saved. But the Bible also continues to tell us that salvation happens in the present tense. Let me show you this. Uh, Paul is writing another letter to a, a, a church in Corinth, and this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are, help me out, being saved, it is the power of God. Do you see that? Being saved. Salvation in the present tense. Now, when we talk about being saved or or the present tense of salvation, we are talking about an idea that we call sanctification. Everyone say sanctification. Sanctification. And sanctification is about being saved from the power of sin. See, justification is about being saved, been saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is about being saved from the power of sin, which means that Jesus died to do more than just forgive your sins. It means that Jesus died to change your life. It means that he came to change the way you live. How many of you know that Christianity is not, not about having the right belief system about God and doctrine of the Bible, and that's it. It is about having the right belief system, but it's also about living out that belief system and having Jesus change you from the core of who you are more into his image every single day. But here's the thing. Justification, that we said, was an event. It's a moment, but sanctification is a what? Process. It's a journey. Sanctification is a journey. Let me ask it this way. How many of you, when you became a follower of Jesus, you trusted Christ, and then you were zapped into perfection overnight? Anybody? How many of you, you trusted Jesus, and you're still kind of messed up? Yeah. Welcome to the family. Listen, if your hand's not up right now, you're more messed up than the rest of us. <laughs> you know? Sanctification 
is the ongoing process where God is reaching out of heaven by his spirit in partnership with you and me so that we can be being saved, present tense. Amen? Now, Paul takes this even further. First Thessalonians chapter 4, look what he says. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. I've had so many people say, I don't know what God's will is for my life, or I'm going to tell you what it is right now. Your sanctification. That's what it is. The will of God for your life is to be sanctified. It is to be set apart. It is to live different. It is to think different. It is to act different. Listen, if you are claiming to follow Jesus, but your life continues to look like your neighbor or the coworker or the or the or, the, or wherever you are with someone else that doesn't have a relationship with God, then something is wrong with your faith. Something is actually wrong with your relationship to Jesus. Listen, we need to be saved, past tense. But we also need to continue to be being saved, being sanctified, set apart, holy, pure, righteous for him. This is why Paul continues in this. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What's he getting at here? What he's saying here is here, let me give you an example of what it means to look different, to be holy and all that. Well, let's use sexual immorality as one area out of many different things we could, he, could have, he could have chosen, but he uses sexual immorality. Now let me say something, and can I just, I'm going to say some hard truth. Can I do that? Listen, if you're here today, and you claim you've been saved, but you're still here, and you're, and you're, you're sleeping with your boyfriend and girlfriend, you're not being saved. Like if you're a guy, and you continue to go home and you go to your room and you get off of work and you open up your computer and you download whatever and do whatever, you're not being saved. If you're a woman and you continue to, to dress the way you do so that you can, you know, get, get an eye to turn to you at the gym or whatever and you're acting the way you're acting to get the attention of men, whatever it is, you are not being saved. Listen, maybe you've been saved Past tense. You've been justified. You're going to stand before God someday, and he's like, yes, paid in full. There it is. But you're not being saved. You're still a wreck. Are you reflecting Jesus? Are, are, are you experiencing God's design for you? Are you happy? Are you overflowing with joy and peace and hope and knowledge of the living God? Do you have an intimate relationship with your maker? Do you have friendship, real friendship, with your brothers and sisters? Why this is important, church, and why I'm driving this home is that our gospel doesn't just have the power to save us, it has the power to transform us. God didn't save you to keep you where you are. And I think the danger is when we talk about justification only, when we talk about our salvation as an event in the past, we actually start to kind of downplay grace what Diedrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. I was reading uh, a, a, a quote out of this book this week, and forgive me, this quote is absolutely butchered, so don't look at the whole whatever here. The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung, he writes this, any gospel which purports to, 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 to save people while without also transforming them is inviting easy believism. If you think being a Christian is nothing more than saying a prayer or joining a church, then you've confused real grace with cheap grace. Those who are justified will be sanctified. 
Listen, don't let the thought that you've been saved exonerate you from the reality that you need to continue to be saved. I don't know about you. I'll be, I can speak for me. I still need being saved. Like, I need to be saved from my anxiety. I need to be saved from my insecurity. I need to be saved from my selfishness and my obsession with myself. I need saving from, from the pursuit of everything contrary to the heart of God. I need saving right here, right now. I need God to reach out of heaven by his spirit and continue to save my mind and how I think. Continue to save my heart and how I live. I am saved, but I still need saving. So, how many of you know, though, that sanctification's hard? Transformation is difficult. You know, I was talking with some friends of mine. I meet every Friday with some guys in Halifax, and we were talking about this whole idea of sanctification and this whole idea of just going through like the pain of it, how transformation has been so difficult. It feels like discipline, doesn't it? Somewhere in the Bible it says that God disciplines the one he loves, right? Here's the thing I, I've come to know about this process of sanctification. Being sanctified has brought me more of awareness of the love of God in my life. It's an incredible thing. God is gracious and merciful in, our, in the process of sanctification, in being saved I've never experienced more the love of God in my life. We all good? We've got one more to go. We've got to keep in mind here the scope of our salvation. That A, we've been justified. We've been saved. But two, phase two, we are sanctified. We are being saved. But let's go on here. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, talks about salvation in the future tense. Look what he says here. He says, much more than having now been justified by his blood... We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, help me out, church, we shall be saved by his life. Shall be saved by his life in the future tense. Now, when salvation is being talked about in the future tense, we are talking about an idea called glorification. Say glorification. And glorification is about being saved, or we shall be saved, future tense, from the presence of sin. If justification is about being saved from the penalty of sin, sanctification is about being saved from the power of sin, how many of you are grateful to know there's coming a day that we shall be saved from the presence of sin? Amen? How many of you are tired Tired of overcoming, tired of fighting, tired of struggling, tired of overcoming depression and anxiety and fear and temptation. Listen, there is coming a day when you shall be saved. When God is going to reach down from heaven and save you, when we get to stand before God in perfect relationship with him, in a new heaven and a new earth, in a new body that is free from sin and death and sickness and cancer, free from temptation, free from lust, free from it all. We're going to have a reality. And that's the thing about glorification. This is a future reality. This is a promise of a future reality that you and I will have bodies that are sinless, that are painless, that, are, that we are free and back in right relationship with God, right relationship 
relationship with one another, right relationship with even creation, all of redemption. This is glorification. You shall be saved. And not only that, we, listen, we are going to be in the actual presence of God. Not God the idea, not God, God's presence in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the actual presence of God. Today, as we've been worshiping, have you not sensed the presence of God by his Holy Spirit? There's coming a day when we'll be in the actual presence of God. You shall be safe. And for those of you who know this story, how many of you know that when you know there's a future reality in front of you, that being glorified someday will bring you hope. Man, hope rises. Doesn't it? I mean, this is why Christian funerals are awesome. You know? Because we have this hope of a future reality. Back at that meeting I had with that gentleman in the coffee shop a couple of weeks ago, I got to talk to him a little bit about hope. And I said to him, Jesus isn't a hope among other hopes. It's not like I pick him out of other hopes. You need to hear me today, man. Jesus is our only hope. He's our only hope. So how do we talk about our story? How do we tell our redemption story? We tell it this way, that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. See, the thing is, is that oftentimes, and I think, again, the problem that we sometimes have when we talk about salvation as just being a destination or a place that we arrive someday, I don't know about you, but when, when that's what my understanding of salvation is, I find church really boring. <laughs> Listen, if your salvation story has a start and an ending already, I would argue you don't really know what redemption is. But if you think about salvation and redemption and Jesus and the cross, not as much of a destination, but as a journey, you see salvation as an unfolding, like an unfolding story of your entire life. I've been saved, but I'm being saved, and I shall be saved. I think this is why the invitation of Jesus to anybody and everybody who wants to take him up on it is not, hey, come learn from me and then take a test. That's not what he says. He says, no, no, no. I want you to come and follow me. Come, come on a journey with me. Come walk with me. Let's get going. Come follow me. Follow me, Peter. Follow me, James. Follow me, John. Follow me, Pastor Brent. Follow me, Seth. Follow me, Valley Campus. Follow me, Halifax. Follow me. Come and follow me. You see, I find that redemption, this story that we talk about, this salvation story that we claim, is really just a story of Jesus taking us on a journey further into the heart of God. And it's not that we've arrived yet, is it? I mean, Paul even talks about this a little bit later on. And another letter he writes, Paul, the guy who actually saw Jesus face to face, the guy who wrote like all of the New Testament, listen to what he says. He says this in Philippians chapter 3, he says, not that I have already grasped it all or have already become perfect, but I press on 
if I may also take hold of that for which I was even taken hold of by Christ Jesus. And he ends with this, brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward. Do you see the, do you see the journey language here? What, I'm, what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Church, what is the prize? Jesus is the prize. You've been saved. We are being saved. We shall be saved. That's my redemption story. That's our redemption story. Is that your story? If it's not, it can be today. It can be today. What a life we have in Christ, amen? We have so much hope in Christ. Why don't you stand with me as we come to a close? I want to pray for us today. Father, I thank you that today as we unpack this grand narrative, the story of redemption, that this was on your heart from the beginning. And it wasn't just for me and my little sin off in this corner of the world, but the redemption story is so much bigger than me. That all of creation, all of the cosmos, all that has been infected by sin and death, you are redeeming. Redeeming all things. And the fact, God, that you would redeem me, that you would come and you would, you, you would save me, you would save me from the penalty of sin. That I would not have to experience damnation and hell and and all that that entails, God, but also not only that, that you didn't just leave me there to just save me and just not let me change and transform, but we have the, the work of sanctification, the process of sanctification, that the will that you have for my life is my sanctification. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't leave me where I am, but you're transforming me day by day more into the image of God. And thank you that in the days that get weary and tired that we have a future hope, a future reality where we are free from the presence of sin once and for all and totally in your presence. Thank you that that redemption story can be ours in Christ Jesus. So today, for those maybe that are here and you've never been saved, I just pray that you would hear the invitation of Jesus today when he says simply, come, follow me. Let's go on a journey. Let's go on a journey. And when you, when you start that journey, what you'll find is there's, there's more. We find ourselves asking, what's next, God? What's next? What's after this? What's after that? God, I pray for those today. I pray for the one who's been struggling. Maybe there's addiction. Maybe there is uh, a sin that just will not let go of itself. We have the promise that, you, that we're not, we haven't just been saved, we are being saved in Christ Jesus. And for those of us, Lord, that maybe are grieving for a long time, there's a hope coming where you wipe away every tear from every eye. Every pain in our, in our bones and our body will be gone. And we thank you, we thank you for the redemption, God, 
of our souls. Thank you for the redemption that goes so much bigger than me. And so, Lord, we, we step into that redemption story today. And we thank you, God, that you are with us. We thank you that you are the prize. You are the prize. We love you today. And we bless you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. Amen.